I'm back in Ireland after a sojourn uh, working in the UK. I'm a student, uh, a, a mature student. I got the money in England to go to college. And uh, I'm dancing on Saturday and Sunday nights. And if I'm not dancing on Saturday nights, uh, I'm in the back row of the movies, which is a cue for a song. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. But I've got a funny feeling you were probably chasing the object of Roy Orbison's desire, Pretty Woman. Oh, <laughs> he was fabulous. He was an amazing character, an amazing man. Sad life as well. Oh, very sad, very tragic. Um, you know, but this song, Oh, Pretty Woman, released in August 64. And it just was a worldwide hit. Recorded in Monument uh, Records in Nashville, Tennessee. I've stood on the very spot where it was recorded. And uh, it was just, I don't know, there was something so different about it from the drumming that led into it, from the sounds that he made like a cat purring. Uh, but he had just come from having two number ones, Only the Lonely and It's Over. And this was the, the, this was the hat trick. This was the big, the big hit. Uh, Roy Kelton Orbison, born April 23rd, 1936, and he left us in December 1988, best known as the Big O. Um, just an extraordinary man. He had uh, trademark sunglasses, powerful voice, complex compositions, dark emotional ballads, and he was just but, a oh, quintessential. You're yeah. talking about all these things. Mm. The hair. Well, the hair. You can't, you can't stray away from he the hair. He was almost albino. Right. And so he dyed his hair jet black. His family, all the Orbison children, had bad eyesight. And he used big, thick, corrective sun lenses in the days before contacts came along or in the days before retinal surgery could have corrected it for him. So he was uh, very, very self-conscious. And so he turned his appearance into a caricature Rather than just being the ordinary guy in the corner, he ended up as this mad-looking guy with jet black hair, with a massive quiff, with huge sunglasses and black clothes and black leather jacket. And, you know, he was, he was kind of a dark caricature figure, like something straight out of the Betty Boop kind of cartoons. But then he opened his mouth and this magnificent tremulo alto tenor came oh, out yeah. and it was I, so I full. His career was a stroke of luck. It was, you know, people say timing, timing, timing. Well, Elvis Presley had gone in the army. Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly had both died. Little Richard had found religion and Chuck Berry was in jail. So the opposition all left the field and then there was able to be room for Roy Orbison. <laughs> all right, well, this is just fabulous. Um, funny enough, in, in dance halls at that time, there was live music, and it was very difficult for live bands to actually cover this because you had to be a very special uh, type of voice. And uh, Pretty Woman with Roy Orbison, August 1964. <laughs> I don't believe you, you're 
1964, an essential song chosen by Bill Hughes. Who's up next? Who's up next? Oh, in August, we lost the wonderful Scylla Black. Ah, yeah, shame. Very sad for Scylla. Wasn't my kind of singer, really. Oh, I love Well, you know me and female voices, anyway. There are very few of them I like. Mm -hmm. But there was very little about Liverpool that I liked, as in the whole Liverpool pop thing. Well, the Scouse accent drives me crazy. Absolutely. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like it, regardless. But there was something about this song, Anyone Who Had a Heart is the yeah. song we're talking about, written by Burt Bacharach and Hal David, written for Dion Warwick. Uh, Warwick recorded it. It was top ten the States and Canada and everywhere. But in the UK, it was covered by Scylla Black and number one in the UK, in Ireland, New Zealand. Um, the thing about Scylla Black was she was managed by Brian Epstein, who was managing the Beatles. And so she had great pull. Scylla had great songs. She had a great career. She was a television star, you know, blind date and surprise, surprise and all that kind of stuff. She was going to jump out of a loo and surprise you. Uh, She had 11 top 10 hits in the British charts. I just thought there was something very special about her. And, you know, she never had a number one in her life in terms of an album going to number one. But the week she died in August, her greatest hits 
went to number one oh. and she didn't know. But anyone who had her heart, there's a poignancy in this. Guess where it was written? It was written in the Brill Building and uh, by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. And it just has a captured moment of uh, that plaintive cry that you can you can hear shared between Dionne Warwick, Dusty Springfield and Scylla Black. Nothing better than anyone who had a heart. I actually think Scylla's version is better than Dionne Warwick's. Let's listen. Anyone who ever loved could look at me and know that I love you. Anyone who ever dreamed could look at me I dream of you Knowing I love you so Anyone who had a heart Would take me in his arms And love me too Who couldn't be another heart That hurt me Like you hurt me And be so untrue What am I to do? time you go away I always say this time it's goodbye dear loving you the way I do I take you back without you I die dear knowing There she is, Scylla Black, uh, fabulous on Anyone Who Had a Heart to 1964, Essential Songs of Same with Bill Hughes. Now, it'll be hard to top uh, numbers one and two. What's coming in at number three? Well, number three, I when I was putting this little list together and I was thinking, what was my song from 1964? And we were in a caravan in Tramor that summer down in County Waterford the family hues and we had the little transistor radio and we had Luxembourg playing and the hit of the summer was this wonderful song by us a, a new group called the Honeycombs and the song was Have I the Right and I loved it and as a child 
when I realised it was from 1964, I, said, I have to put that in because it's one of my favourite songs of that year. Were they a kind of one-hit wonder band? Uh, they? Yeah, they were really. They had they had a couple of very, very minor hits. But, yeah, but, but this was uh, the the banker. This was it. They were a funny-looking band as well, if you saw them on TV, because unusual for any band at the time, their drummer was a woman. <laughs> they had, really? Yeah, they had a fantastic woman called Honey Lantry. She was their drummer and she was so elegant and she was just sitting there banging out the skins when, you know, you'd be used to looking at, you'd be expecting Keith Moon or Charlie Watts or Ringo Starr. And here was Honey Lantry. (laughs) She was with the honeycombs. Now, I would never have, like if you had said to me, what about 64, I would never mention honeycombs. It just Mm -hmm. wouldn't have crossed my mind because they were a one-hit wonder pretty well. They were a small group. But now that you mention it, I love the song. I mean, songs going round in my head, yeah. you know. Yeah, you can... It's, yeah. It's, it's fun. It's a fun song. And it had a funny little use of a new synthesizer coming in as well, experimenting with little pop. It was a real, pure, happy pop tune. Well, why don't we hear it? I'm feeling hop, hot and pop and happy. And it is Have I the Right with the Honeycombs and Honey on Drums. And have I the right? I must say, honey, uh, you kind of gave her a bad rap before she started, and she was only tapping the skins. But she's fairly driving out to beat that. She really is, yeah. No, it's great. And I remember seeing her on the telly doing it. And as a kid, looking at this, here's this yeah. woman drumming in a, in a band. It was great. You've done well, old Bean, I must say. But then, of course, it's 1964 and Bill Hughes is picking his essential songs. But the interesting thing 
of course, about 1964 and music, you didn't carry it with you. Like, you couldn't listen to it in the bus, you know? Yeah. So you, you listened to it on the radio at home. I didn't have a car, so I wasn't listening to it in the car. Or you listened to cover versions by the show bands. You know what when I mean? you went out on a Saturday night, when you yeah. went to any of the local dance halls, yeah. yeah. So, so it like it's interesting for for younger people who can listen to music twenty four seven. You had to almost make an appointment to listen to music on the radio. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Producer Mark Simpson had a great idea. Mm-hmm. What we're going to do is we're going to put your playlists up on Spotify. Cool. So we'll have news of that. So we've got to get you on to Spotify, Bill. <laughs> uh, you know, are you, are you into that kind of stuff? I will be. You I will be. be. I'm yeah. easily got, I should blow in my ear and I'll follow you anywhere. <laughs> I'm just that kind of person. All right. For the fourth song, we're yeah. going on, we're taking a walk on the wild side. These were the bad boys. These were the bad boys of music in 1964. The bad guys. Who were these bad guys? Bad guys were Eric Burton and the Animals. Oh, they were bad guys. They were the bad guys. They came out of Newcastle upon Tyne and they were gritty and bluesy and deep-voiced and gravelly. And the songs were like... um, don't let me be misunderstood and we got to get out of this place. But the one we have today, their biggest hit of 1964, The House of the Rising Sun. They were great, like, I mean... Great songs. I was very conservative, I must say. Uh, and I didn't kind of go for uh, very often these kind of guys. You know, I sort of dismissed them. That's why I hated everybody from Liverpool. <laughs> but I thought... Uh, the animals, the stuff they produced was fantastic. Really this is did. great. I mean, I'm, I, again, I, I'm so looking forward to hearing it because uh, it, they were just... All the songs we've had um, have been driving songs. Driving, you know? <laughs> driving songs for you, and you love driving songs. Well, you know, it's really funny because trying to figure out who wrote The House of the Rising Sun is an impossible task. Nobody knows. And musicologists say that it's based on the tradition of broadside ballads, such as the unfortunate rake of the 18th century. Yeah. Alan Price of the Animals said that it was a song originally from a 16th century English uh, Soho brothel. Um, but in 1941, after it had been, old recordings had been found of this old folk song, Woody Guthrie got his hands on it. And then in 1950, Lead Belly recorded two versions. In 1960, Joan Baez recorded it on her debut really? album. Bob Dylan recorded it on his debut album. Nina Simone recorded her first version of it in 1962. And then Eric Burton and the animals I got I had no idea that it had such, uh, um, um, you know, uh, a genetic past it was, almost. It was quite crazy and it was associated very much with the brothels of New Orleans. That's where they said, but they said it had come from England in the 16th century. So the House of the Rising Sun, uh, you know, some people called it the Rising Sun Blues. Um, all sorts of people recorded it and it... it a lot of people, when the animals recorded it, it became number one quite literally all over the world, like the United Kingdom, the States, Sweden, Finland, Canada. Number one, number one, number one. It just, the world loved it. And it had been loitering for years, but it was only when the animals put their special 
uh, zap on it their gritty blues and they added in filthy sounds into it like it's a really dirty mix yeah you, you know what I mean a dirty I mix know, I know exactly what mm. you mean and we're going to get it now the, the, um, Bill Hughes is going to go but happily he's going to be back next week with the, we'll, we'll fast forward about 30 years to the 90s so I won't remember a single song he's talking about but 64 I certainly remember and the animals and the house of the rising sun thanks Bill you're welcome.